Well, good morning. Uh, so glad that you have tuned in this morning for a time in the Word. Um, I really have uh, two groups in mind for this live stream. I'm thinking first and foremost of my own church family, Harbin's Community Baptist Church, as, as, um, as even though we're scattered, uh, I believe this is a great way for us to continue the habit in some way, shape, or form of corporately coming before the Word of God together as a church family and hearing the voice of God through His Word. And I know that to many of you, uh, it's encouraging for you to be a part of this stream, knowing that at the same time, you've got other beloved brothers and sisters simultaneously entering into this experience with you. But I also have in mind those who aren't part of this church. Uh, maybe you're part of another church, but they aren't providing a stream like this. Uh, maybe you aren't part of any church at all, but you've come for some encouragement. You've come to hear from God. Uh, regardless of why you're here, thank you for being here. And, and I do hope that God will bless you through this time. Um, as we go forward, feel free to make comments in the thread below and interact with one another uh, during this time. Uh, type in some virtual amens or whatever other encouragement that you, you would like to, to put. Um, uh, just a quick announcement. So um, uh, this, this may not even be on some of y'all's radar because of everything that's going on, but it actually is Holy Week. Um, and uh, uh, Holy Week begins, of course, with Palm Sunday, ends with uh, Easter Sunday. And so things are going to be a little bit different. Holy Week at Harbin's is going to be a little different uh, this year. Typically, for the past couple of years, past few years, uh, we've had some special um, uh, sermons or special services during the week where we'll come together uh, on a Thursday night for Monday, Thursday. And uh, and we'll, we'll take communion, have a have a time in the word uh, Friday. We'll come together uh, at the church as well for Good Friday and, uh, and worship as well. Um, and, um, and and so obviously things are going to be a little different um, this time around. Um, uh, we will have on Friday for Good Friday. Pastor Jared is going to uh, share uh, some devotional thoughts out of God's word. Um, I need to confirm with Pastor Jared as far as uh, the time that uh, he'll be doing that, but uh, we will do a, a stream on, on Good Friday, and uh, and then next week I'll share a message from God's Word uh, for Easter. Uh, so this week, all of our other normal things are going to continue normally during Holy Week at Harbin's because of the two extra services that we've done in the past. Uh, we've canceled, you know, normal uh, small group activities and Bible studies and things like that, but this time it's going to be different. Um, uh, we're going to continue. We're going to have the uh, the Tuesday night prayer time still, uh, the, the online video uh, prayer time that we've been doing for the past couple of weeks. Um, Jared's still going to, to do his um, uh, his men's book study on Wednesday morning and the parables of Jesus study on, on Wednesday night. But then you'll have actually something extra this week compared to the past couple of weeks. There, there will be a Good Friday uh, message from Pastor Jared uh, as well. Um, so we're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Ephesians in a little bit this morning. Uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to share a few thoughts in light of what our nation is going through. And uh, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I have uh, struggled a bit to keep my chin up during this time. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of a lot of question marks. I think question marks about our nation as a whole, and and just the damage that this plague is causing on so many levels. And then kind of shrinking it down to the personal. I think about my own family. Uh, many of you know my wife deals with significant chronic illness, uh, and 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 so I'm trying to be extra careful in protecting her. Uh, it it does make um, grocery shopping a little bit more stressful uh, as I try to maintain social distancing, and I'm wearing gloves, and I got my little bottle of hand sanitizer, and all that. Anyway, like you, um, these past few weeks has been a roller coaster of emotions for me, and and it's been a time of sober reflection. I think one of the best things that God is doing in all of this is showing us that we are not invincible. We aren't invincible as a nation. We aren't invincible as individuals. And I thought a lot about my own frailty as a human being lately. I thought a lot about my own mortality. And it's just amazing that a nation is brought to its knees through a, a little microscopic invader. Now, I don't think plague and death is good. But I do hope that God stripping away the things that we are putting too much of our hope in for safety and security and peace, I, I, I do think stripping away those things, that can be a good thing. We, we, we tend to hope in health 
We hope in a steady income. We hope in a calm, trouble-free suburban lifestyle. We hope in possessions. And, and none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but, but they become bad when we rely on them and those things become the end goal. And I don't know about you, but more and more these past few weeks, um, I've been learning that my hope needs to be in God, in God alone. And, and, and I'm learning that God is sufficient to meet every single need that I have physically and emotionally and spiritually. Now, I've always known that, and I've been through experiences in the past that have taught me that, but this is yet another one of those experiences that really reinforces that uh, in a big way. And, and before we get into the main teaching time in the book of Ephesians, I wanted to share a psalm with you. It's, uh, it's Psalm 42, and I found this psalm especially appropriate for a time like this for a couple of reasons. First, the psalmist is going through a difficult time, even a time of depression, where he is battling despair. And I think, I think a lot of folks are fighting that right now. Maybe you are. But also, and here's what I find to be really fascinating. The psalmist is particularly struggling because he is cut off from corporate worship with God's people. There, there's something going on in his life, uh, a trial that's happening to him and is preventing him from going to the temple. So he can't be with his his uh, brothers and sisters. He can't be with his fellow worshipers. He longs to be with them again. And Harbage Church, I know that many of you are feeling the exact same way. This virtual stream thing that we are doing, it's a good tool, but y'all, it does not beat the real thing, right? <laughs> it's not a substitute for the real thing. And and I, I think another good thing that God is doing through all of this in our country is that, for, at least for some of us, he is helping us to not take the church and corporate worship for granted. And, and so I, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful that on, on the other end of this thing, God willing, we'll, we'll get to the other end of it, that, that we are going to be more uh, zealous and more excited uh, and more eager for corporate worship and, and, the, and, and fellowship with the community of God's people uh, than ever before. Um, but I want to read with you right now Psalm 42. You can turn there with me if you want, or you can just listen along. And, uh, and, I, and I'm going to pause along the way for some comments here. But, but as I'm reading Psalm 42, I want you to hear God's voice of encouragement in, in the midst of this all. This is Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where shall I come and appear before God? Now, let me pause right there. You see this longing that he has to go to the temple. He longs for it and is desperate for it. He says in verse three, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? The psalmist here has enemies that are taunting him. They are adding insult to injury. Uh, where is God in all of this? They say, and by the way, you have an enemy. You have an invisible enemy whispering lies into your ear in the middle of your trials, in the middle of COVID-19. And he is saying, he's asking the same question, where is your God? Where is he now? Verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Now, now, what's the psalmist doing here? He's looking back, isn't he? He's looking back with fondness on, on, on those times of worshiping with God's people. He's doing what many of you, I think, are doing right now, looking back at the past. And wow, I just remember those days and I long for those days again where I could come and be with God's people. You can relate to this. And it creates a sadness in you because you miss it and you want to go back to that. Verse five. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The, the psalmist here is preaching to himself. I'm gonna talk more about that in a moment. He goes on to say, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. So geographically, he is far from the temple. He's distant. But, but notice the solution to his depression. He remembers. 
He remembers God. He remembers his goodness. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. He feels overwhelmed by the by circumstances and by his trials. He feels like he's drowning. And, and maybe, maybe some of you feel that way this morning. Psalmist can relate to that. Verse 8, by, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Go back to that in a moment, too. Verse 9, I say to my rock, say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I could be here that his enemies are the ones that are preventing him from getting to the temple to worship. And he, but he feels like God has forgotten him. And, and here's where I appreciate the raw honesty of the Psalms. And, and, and all the more his enemies continue to taunt him. Verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? They're just rubbing his nose in it. But look at how the Psalm ends. Why are you cast down O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So this, this psalm's a roller coaster. It's up and down emotionally. And, and that's how your life is, right? Up and down. That's how it's been for the past few weeks. And the psalmist is honest about, about what's going on and his feelings. But he's stubborn. The psalmist is stubborn. And he's stubborn in a good way. Because he keeps refusing to let his feelings of despair have the last word. He keeps bringing it back to God. In essence, the psalmist is preaching to himself. He's preaching truth to himself. Uh, He remembers God. He remembers his love. He remembers that God is the God of his life. And ultimately, he remembers that God is his hope. And he is stubborn about it. He says, I shall again praise him. Every time he falls into depression, he says, I shall again praise him. One more time, I'll praise him. Another time, I'll praise him. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep focusing on what's true. He's my salvation, and he's my God. And friends, during this this plague in America, uh, really, this this plague the world is suffering from, you've got to be stubborn. You've got to have a holy stubbornness about you. You've got to be a stubborn preacher, preaching to yourself constantly what you know to be true. He is your hope, and he is your salvation. He has never forsaken his people. He has always provided for his people whatever they need to do, whatever he has called them to do, and he won't let you go. And if you come out on the other side of this, learning that, and really experiencing the, the sustaining power of God through the trial like never before, uh, where you come to a point where you have zero hope in the things of this world and you have 100% rock solid hope in God, then praise God, it's worth it. It's worth it. One way that you're going to find hope in God moving forward in the days and weeks ahead is through the word of God. You can't preach to yourself unless you've got something to preach about, right? And, and I've, I've been advertising this for the past few days, but uh, tomorrow we're going to start, uh, I'm going to start a journey throughout the entire New Testament, and I'm going to read the New Testament, the entire New Testament, in 40 days. If you, if you read the Bible for about a half an hour every day, you can get through, through the entire New Testament. And I've been inviting you all to join me with this. Uh, join me uh, in this particular journey, and a lot of you have already taken up the challenge. We're going to start it tomorrow. Um, uh, we're we're going to use the Uversion app for this, and uh, it's, it's an app you can get for your phone. And once you join Uversion, find me on Uversion. Uh, my name on Uversion is Pastor Deemer Webb. Send me a friend request. I'll friend you on Uversion, and then um, I'll invite you to join this uh, this uh, reading group um, with me where we can hold one another accountable. And, and on the Uversion app, we can even make comments about the things that we're reading, ask questions, uh, whatever. But I think it's going to be a great experience in the next 40 days, 40 days in God's word, 40 days in the New Testament, 40 days of getting incredible truth that's going to give your heart hope in the days ahead. In the New Testament, you're going to read things like in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says, fear not, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you 
the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, he says. He gives you hope and he gives you encouragement, even though other things may seem to be passing away and falling uh, apart around you, there's a kingdom that's coming that belongs to you. God's giving it to you and you have no reason to fear. In the New Testament, you're going to read scriptures like in the book of Hebrews where the where the Hebrew saints were enduring the loss of, of their property and they and they were nevertheless joyful in the middle of it because they knew that they had a better kingdom, a better possession and a lasting one as well. And you're going to read the grand climax in the book of Revelation where the Lord Jesus Christ returns and all the things that have been wrong are set right again. And that is ultimately our hope in all of this, right? You're going to experience all that and more going through the New Testament over the next 40 days. So I hope that you will uh, do that with me. And I know some of you have um, already friended me on Version, and, uh, and I, I haven't gotten to you yet. I will this afternoon. Um a friend more of you and we'll invite more of you to join uh, join me in that reading plan. So let me go ahead now and pray for us and then we're going to open up the, the book of Ephesians and, and have um, uh, some more good time in God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, thank you so much for your precious word and um, and Father, I thank you for the reminder of Psalm 42 that Yes, in this life, there comes times of great difficulty, of great trial, and of great tribulation, and things that really threaten to overwhelm us, things that, that make us feel like we are drowning un, uh, beneath the waters. And yet the psalm also reminds us ultimately where our hope is found. It's found in you. And I pray that you would impress that upon our hearts and upon our minds in the days ahead, that we would preach it to ourselves and that we would preach it to one another. I pray that we would be a people that would put our hope in you, that we would again praise you, our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, we are in Ephesians chapter four, uh, Ephesians four, and, um, we're going to start at verse, well, for context sake, I think we're going to start at verse um, verse 20. Start at verse 20. So go ahead and uh, turn there, and, uh, and we'll get to that in a moment. So I was uh, I was thinking the other day of, of something that had happened to me a few, a few years ago. Uh, I was sitting in my office. I was in the pastor's study, and I experienced a situation where for a moment, I was tempted. I was tempted to lie. Uh, I was I was living in Alaska at the time, and one of the benefits of living in Alaska is that they pay you to live there. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. It's called the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend Check, and it's got something to do with the oil revenues. I don't understand it all, but I was I was glad to get this money, and this really has been going on for a long time. And I know that some of you right now are looking forward to getting those stimulus checks from the government soon. Well, what we got in Alaska was like getting that every single year, but but more. And it was for you and everyone in your home. Well, this was uh, this was in the spring of uh, 2015. And that was a big year for me because we were on the verge of leaving Alaska to come back to Georgia to serve here at Harbin's Church. And we were under a bit of financial pressure in this transition. We, we were going to be coming down without a vehicle, coming down without a home. There are lots of financial expenditures that were coming up. And so I was really looking forward to getting these checks, five big ones, five checks, uh, for one for every member of my household. That was going to be a huge help to us. Well, every year you have, had to fill out this form and apply to get these funds and, and say that you had lived in the state the previous year. And then you had to answer some other questions on there. And I did that. And I completed the form and I was about to put that form in an envelope and send it away when I noticed that there was something on the form that I had never noticed before. But there it was staring at me. And it was a section that said that one requirement for receiving these checks was that I was going to have to live in Alaska for the remainder of the year. And if not, I would not be eligible. And, and y'all, when I saw that, it was like all the... It's like all the air of excitement was sucked out of that balloon. 
and I saw thousands of dollars about to evaporate before my very eyes. I could not believe it. This was something that I had never seen before in filling out this form, never noticed it, never realized it. And, and what's more, I had just caught this little extra thing just seconds before I was going to send that form away. And I was so upset that I had seen what I saw because if my eyes had not noticed that little caveat, I could have innocently just sent in that form none the wiser, out of ignorance, and I could have gotten the funds with a clean conscience. But now I had a moment of decision. I could just pretend that I never saw what I saw. I mean, think, think about it. Just seconds ago, I was ignorant of that as I was going to submit that form. Can't I just go back to that moment, just rewind a little bit and just do what I was going to do? And besides, I lived in Alaska all last year. And isn't that what those checks are for, for living in Alaska? And who would ever know anyway? What's the big deal? The state's got plenty of money. It's ridiculous. I need the money. All of these thoughts and more were racing through my head in just a matter of seconds. And the temptation came to lie, to be dishonest, to, and to justify it. Now, if you are just appalled that, that those things went through my head, well, you can just turn off the stream and you can find a more spiritual preacher. But this is what I experienced in a brief moment in time on that springtime afternoon in Alaska. It, it was just an experience that lasted for seconds. But, but I'll be honest, it was a temptation in that moment. There was in that moment an identity crisis. And at the center of that crisis was the question, who am I? And what does that mean in regards to how I am going to live? And those questions are exactly the kinds of questions that the book of Ephesians is all about. Now, now if you look with me at uh, verse 17 of Ephesians, Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians that now that they are believers, they must no longer walk as they used to, as the pagan Gentile unbelievers do. He goes on in the next few verses to describe the old way of life. Uh, the, the unbeliever is futile in his thinking. He's chasing after things that this in this world for peace and life and satisfaction that's never going to provide him with those things. In verse 18, Paul says that the unbeliever is darkened in understanding. Uh, he's not seeing the world through a God-centered perspective. He is instead self-referential, and that totally affects how he does life. We see that the unbeliever is also cut off from the life of God, becoming increasingly hardened to God, at war with God, and running from God because the unbeliever in the end wants to be God. Verse 19 says the unbelievers become calloused, enslaved to sin, giving himself over to it. Uh, because of this, our identity was, according to Ephesians 2, children of wrath, facing the eternal judgment of God in hell for our rebellion against him. Uh, you see, the consequence of our rejection of God in time is that God will reject us in eternity. And this is the experience of every single one of us apart from the grace of God, and it is a sad story. But for the Christian, it's not the end of the story. In verse 20, Paul reminds us of the profound seismic shift that has happened. The Christian has heard the voice of Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel, verse 21. And the good news is that God has rescued us from the old way of life that was killing us, a life that could never deliver on the promises of fulfillment apart from God anyway. And he's given us a new and better identity and a new and better way of life as his child. Instead of being children of wrath, you're now children of God. And with, and with your new identity, you get a new wardrobe. This is, this is the metaphor Paul uses to help us understand the impact of this change. Our past life, apart from God, is seen as old, disgusting, dirty, worn-out clothes. He says in verse 22 that we learned in Christ to put off that old self. And instead now, verse 23, uh, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And, and we talked last week about how that primarily happens through filling our minds with God's word. And so our thinking becomes increasingly conformed to God's thoughts. And, he, and then he says in verse 24, we're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Because being a child of God means you're growing into the likeness of God as your character, your way of life, your relational interactions begin to look more and more and more like God. As, as a little child grows into looking more and more like his daddy, so it is with the children of God. 
But Paul wants you to know that this transformation into God's beautiful likeness will not come about through passivity. You play a role. You've got a responsibility in this process. That's why he says in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he says back up in verse one that you must instead walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The, the whole point of Ephesians is explaining to you who you actually are in Christ and then challenging you to live up to that, to live in line with your new identity, to not lead a fake hypocritical life, but to be who you really are, to be who you were born again to be. Paul's not telling you to live in this way to become a child of God. He's telling you that you're already a child of God, and therefore, in light of that, live as one, be who you are. So what, what, is that, what does that practically look like? Well, this is, this is where things in Ephesians really begin to get uh, kind of nitty-gritty practicals. Paul takes us, in a sense, to the closet and shows us our new wardrobe that we're to put on. So let's take a look together at what God has to say to us in his word this morning. Uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, let's go ahead and pick it up in, uh, in verse 25. And, um, and I think I'm going to read on down through the end of the chapter, but to be incredibly honest, we're only going to have an opportunity to really think about uh, one verse this morning. But I'm going to go ahead and read the, the following verses after that so you can see where Paul is going. We'll start in verse 25. God's word says, Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, would you have mercy on me, a sinner, and a, a, a weak, imperfect, flawed preacher. Would you have mercy on those who are tuning in this morning, who are weak, flawed, imperfect hearers and listeners? And Father, would you work through this, this weak and imperfect medium of a, of a Facebook stream? This is not like how it ought to be with us gathered together around God's word. But nevertheless, Father, your word is powerful. Your word never returns void. And Father, I'm asking you that your word would do a mighty work in the hearers this morning as it's been doing in my heart as I've been preparing for this passage. And ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this section, Paul shows us the new clothes of the Christian. Uh, in one sense, we've already put on Christ when we initially became believers. But on the other hand, there still is nevertheless the need to continue to intentionally dress accordingly. Um, you aren't just going to passively let go and let God in respects to your Christian growth. You, you're actually expected to do something. You're supposed to be actively involved in putting off the clothing of the past. But it's more than that. We just don't have a, a list of don'ts, uh, of negative commands, and often that's what people think Christianity is. It's just, it's just about refraining from and giving up certain behaviors. But I want you to notice that Paul's not just telling you to put off certain things. He's also telling you to put on other things. That, that's the whole purpose of putting off. It's not just about stopping certain things for the sake of stopping them, uh, but it is so that you can now replace those old things with something that's new and so much better. Matter of fact, if there are certain sinful habits that you're trying to kill, but all you're doing is focusing on the thing that you should not be doing, and you're not replacing those habits with something new, you're going to find yourself very frustrated because you're, you're missing half the equation. Because walking with God isn't just about breaking away from the bad stuff. It's about embracing and walking in a way that's good. So we're going to begin to examine over the next uh, few weeks the new wardrobe of the Christian as Paul urges us in light of our new identity to dress differently. And, and 
right now we're only going to be able to cover one of these items in the closet. This is a one-point sermon <laughs> this, this morning. And the first thing that he tells us to do is put off the put off the lies and put on the truth. Put off the lies and put on the truth. Again, verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The old self, the unbelieving self, was futile in thinking and darkened in understanding. Paul said that earlier in Ephesians, uh, elsewhere in Romans 1, Paul gives the same kind of picture as he describes the great global apostasy of the human race as one that is involved in suppressing the truth about God, while at the same time exchanging the truth for the lie. And when, when Paul says in verse 25, having put away falsehood, literally in the Greek, he is saying, having put away the lie. It, it, it's the same uh, Greek phrase that you find in Romans chapter 1 putting away the lie. What what lie? The lie that we're in control. The lie that we're in the center. The lie that our way is better than God's way and that we don't need him. The lie that whatever we can obtain on our own apart from God is superior to whatever we have in God. Indeed, was that not at the heart of the lie back in the Garden of Eden? Uh, the very first lie in Genesis 3, uh, the devil tells Adam and Eve, that they could throw off the shackles that God put on them, shackles. It wasn't really shackles. It was freedom that God gave, gave them. But again, he's lying here, he, and he's saying they can throw off the shackles of God, and they could be self-sufficient, detached from God. That's the lie. And they believed that lie, and they ended up in bondage to the lie, and in bondage to the devil, and in bondage to death. And, and Paul in Ephesians 4 is saying that the putting away of falsehood of the lie is part and parcel of becoming a Christian. But he's, he's actually saying more than that. Because even though the verb in the Greek is in the aorist tense, having put away falsehood, uh, Greek scholars and commentators agree that this is really meant not just to speak of something in the past, uh, but that this is meant to have present imperative force. This is actually a command. Um, this is an expectation of, of just regular day-to-day -day life. In fact, if you look at the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 9, very plainly, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices and, and have put on the new self. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 25. Yes, there was a point, definitely, in the past where you initially put off falsehood. That happened when you received the truth of Christ, but it continues to have ramifications in your life in the present. And so you must continue to put off the, the old clothes of lying. Now, if we do that, we are really going to dress differently than the culture, aren't we? Because we live in a culture that has become increasingly tolerant of lies. TV commercials lie to us about the effectiveness of their product. Politicians lie to us about what they're going to do for the American people. The media lies and misrepresents the truth. Husbands and wives lie when they forsake their marriage vows. Preachers lie and deceive their par uh, parishioners. Yes, that has happened. Uh, people justify telling so-called little white lies all the time. Uh, well, I've got to just tell this little lie because the truth would hurt them. Paul says we're to be done with that. We're to be done with that way of life. Now, your initial response is going to be, well, of course lying is wrong, and I would never do anything like that. Well, okay, maybe. But but I, I sometimes think we put a narrow box around what lying is. And we say, okay, I don't do any of the things in that little box, so that means I don't lie, and I don't have an issue with lying. Well, let, let, let's camp out there for a little bit. Let me ask you this. When your husband or wife asked you what's wrong and you say, nothing, I'm fine. When something is wrong and you're not fine, are you being truthful there or not? How about when you make commitments and you don't follow through with them? I'll be there at 9. You show up at 9.45. Do you have a pattern of breaking commitments? Uh, are, 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 you, are you one that can... can cannot be consistently relied upon to do what you say that you will do? If, if so, you're stepping into the realm of deception. You're stepping into the realm of lying. Are, are you prone to exaggerate? 
Do you use extreme words and, and explanations of things to make a point or win an argument or convince somebody uh, of something? Uh, it's, but, but it's an exaggeration or, or you're embellishing a story. That's deception, my friends. That, that's a type of falsehood. Uh, if you're speaking words that are tearing somebody else down and it's distorting the truth, and if you're not speaking of them as God would speak of them, that's falsehood. When you go when you go into social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, and you post something with the intent of crafting an image of yourself and of your life that is increasingly less and less real, but you want people to think it is, you want people to think it's real, uh, you, you want to control and, and manufacture people's perception of you so that people think you're more spiritual than you actually are, that your family is more together than it really is, that you're more successful than you really are, and you aim to give certain people an impression of yourself that is a distortion of reality. Is there some deception going on there? By the way, this type of deception where you are controlling your image, uh, it, that actually was one of the first recorded sins of the early church. And we're given a terrifying picture of how seriously God takes this sort of sin. Uh, if you turn with me to Acts chapter four, uh, Acts four. Now, some of you may recall this story, but this is something that happened in the very first church, uh, the church in Jerusalem. Now, one of the amazing characteristics of the early church was its extreme generosity to the point where as people in the church had need Folks would do whatever they could to meet that need. In fact, uh, Acts 2.45 says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And by the way, that is exactly how I want Harbin's church to be, especially if the COVID-19 crisis ramps up and more and more people in our church are impacted uh, economically. I, I want us to be that way so that there is not a single need uh, among the membership of this church. Now, if you're in Acts 4, it says in verse 34 that there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was, it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son, son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So these folks are just being incredibly generous with one another. Everybody's getting into the Acts, just amazing. Then you get Acts 5, and it says, but, okay, so even right there, <laughs> that word but is a signal that something is about to go wrong. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So what's the, what's the problem here? What, what did they do that was wrong? Some might say, well, they didn't donate all the proceeds. No, that, that's, not the, that's not the issue. That's not the problem. Verse 2, verse 2 says that he kept back some of the money for himself. Now that word, kept back, in the Greek, means to put aside for oneself in a dishonest, shady kind of way. You see, the problem wasn't Ananias keeping some of the money for himself. That, that's why Peter said in verse 4, after sold, uh, was the money not at your disposal to do with as you pleased? In other words, if Ananias were just to say, hey, I'm giving 80% of the proceeds to the church, I'm going to keep 20 for myself, that wouldn't have been a big deal. Wouldn't have been a problem. But the issue here is that it was all done in secret, and he gave he wanted he gave the illusion of donating all the money as opposed to part of it. What what was Ananias doing? He was he was uh, deceitfully creating this image of himself as giving it all, probably because he wanted to appear as spiritual as other people or more spiritual than other people. He wanted to look good. He wanted people to think that he was more generous than he was. It was all, it was all pride. 
But God knew what was going on. God hated it. In fact, God takes it very personally. Peter says, you, you haven't lied to me. You lied to God. And, and so then what happened? Well, if you finish the story, God kills Ananias and Sapphira for their deception. That, that's some hard church discipline, y'all. But this is how seriously God takes lying. And in particular, lying in the church, lying amongst the people of God, because the church is supposed to be God's people. We're to, we're to represent God. And so if, if we lie, we're not only lying to God, we're lying about God. And I would go further and say that lying is even an attempt to be God. Now you say, well, why do you say that, Deemer? Because when you lie, what are you doing? You're, you're using words. And you're using words to do what? You're using words to create some sort of reality. That's what Ananias and Sophia were doing. They were, they were trying to create this appearance of extreme generosity, trying to control all of that through their words, creating an alternate reality. But folks, think about it. Who is it that has the right and the power to shape and control reality with his words? God does. He's the only one that, that does that. He's the only one that actually can do that. The best that we can do is lie and create the illusion of something. Only God can call things that are not as though they are. And so our use of lying to try to manipulate reality is a blasphemous perversion of a right that belongs to God alone. And, and there are so many ways that, that we can lie. And Paul says we are to be done with that way of life because God is now our father. And, and so if God is our father and we have been given the identity of his children meant to imitate him, then when we lie, we are not imaging him rightly. We're imaging a different father. Who's the Bible say is the father of lies? In, in Acts chapter 5, what we just read, whom did Peter say filled Ananias' heart to lie? Satan. Satan instigated it. Satan loves lies. Remember what Jesus said to his unbelieving opponents in John 8? He said something very chilling uh, to them. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. To lie in any way, I don't care what kind of lie it is, big lie, little white lies, little, little distortions on Facebook, whatever it might be, to lie in any way, deceive, distort, exaggerate, embellish, is to speak Satan's own thoughts after him, and that should terrify you. It should terrify you. Kids, some of you kids you might be watching, you, you might have an issue with lying. Maybe some of your parents have talked to you uh, about lying before and, 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 and the problems that, that it causes and, and that it's a sin against God and all those things are true. But the other thing that you need to know is that when you lie, you're speaking the language of the devil. You're, you're, you're acting like the devil. And Christian person, if, if you are engaged in deceit and distortion in any way, what you're doing is you're speaking your old tongue. You're speaking your old language. That You're speaking as your old self used to speak, and you're falling back into that old pattern. But if you're a Christian, the devil's no longer your father. You're no longer to speak the language that the devil speaks. You notice something else. Notice that Paul does not only say that we're to put off the old clothes of lying, but that we're to replace those filthy rags with something new. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. In other words, this is really important. It's not sufficient for you to refrain from lying and think, all right, I'm not telling, telling lies anymore, so that means I'm, I'm living as a Christian, doing everything that I need to be doing. No, no, no. It, now that you put off the old clothes, you've you got to put something on now. you got to put something new on to replace them. And you are now not only an ex-liar, you are also a truth teller. You are proactively speaking the truth to your neighbor. Now, who's your neighbor? Well, when we ask that question, it's hard not to think of Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, where we learn that in a broad sense, your neighbor is anyone that crosses your path that's in need. And, and that's true. 
But Paul here in Ephesians 4 is thinking in a much more narrow sense when he uses the word neighbor. Paul's, Paul's not thinking here of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, there's general consensus among commentators, and I agree with them, that Paul is quoting uh, from Zechariah 8.16. I, I think that's true, but I think we need to uh, expand kind of what we're thinking about that. It's not just a quote from Zechariah 8.16. When a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament verse, it's important to remember that typically they aren't just thinking of that one verse but they're thinking of the larger context and the point of that verse. And what do we have in Zechariah 8? Zechariah 8, the prophet looks forward to the restoration of his people in Jerusalem, where God comes to dwell in the midst of his people and God works powerfully among them. uh, And there is peace and there is prosperity. And this powerful work of God is most clearly manifested in the formation of a community that is characterized by the truth. In fact, Zechariah 8.3 says Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And then in verse 16, God says that these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. God sees his people as a people that are treating one another according to what is true. Uh, In the intentions of their hearts, in in their speech, in their interactions, in their decision-making, everything that they do is rooted in that which is true, just like God does. And the climax of Zechariah 8 is that even the Gentiles who were once far off and distant are brought near to the people of God. It says in Zechariah 8.23, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What's going on there? They are drawn in through God's activity. Zechariah says people from every nation and tongue will seek the Lord. Jew and Gentile alike together will seek the Lord. And Paul, in referencing Zechariah 8, understands that what is happening in Ephesus is part of the beginning of the fulfillment of that glorious prophecy. Paul has already set us up to think in these ways earlier back in Ephesians, where he uh, he told us in Ephesians 2 that through the gospel of Christ, God has indeed brought the Gentiles who once were far off near, and he has united Jew and Gentile into one new man as they together seek the Lord. And what's more, Paul says that they themselves are the new temple, and the long-awaited promises of God dwelling in the midst of his people has come through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while the full consummation of these prophecies has yet to be experienced, we, we, we live in between the already and the not yet. Uh, the, the kingdom of God is already here, and, it, and, and yet it's not come in its final form. Nevertheless, in Christ, the, the beginnings, the dawnings of the eschaton, the new age, have come, as God even now is beginning to build his new covenant people, a people to be characterized by truth. And so Paul, in drawing upon Zechariah 8, cast a grand and glorious vision in respect to how members of the church community are to relate to one another. And just as the truth-telling integrity, uh, just as the truth-telling integrity-filled community in Zechariah 8 demonstrates the presence and power of God to the pagan world, so it is right now. That our dealings with one another in the church speak a powerful word of witness about God's presence in our midst to the lost. And, 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 May the world see us, and and may the world wonder, and may God use that witness so that others may be drawn to God and may join us in seeking the Lord. So in this community of people that God is building, it's more than just that we are avoiding deceit. Yes, yes, we are putting that off, but more than that, we are now putting on something. We're putting on truth. We're speaking truth in big areas and in the little areas that sometimes we don't think about. And so, for example, if there's a relational issue between you and somebody else in the church or between you and your spouse or you and your kids and it's not being resolved, the solution is not to pretend that everything is just fine. That would be deceitful. That would be lying. Instead, you're you're to be truthful and honest about what's going on and seek to deal with it biblically. 
If a member of this church is falling into sinful attitudes, whether they're, whether that be grumbling or complaining, or whether it's sinful fear and anxiety that stems from unbelief, it's not enough for us in those moments just to keep our mouths shut and think we are honoring God just because we aren't lying. Yes, we put off lying, but, but, but are you putting on truth in its place? And, and now are you lovingly speaking true words to that brother or sister in the congregation to help them? Bible says we are to think on things that are true. And so part of our ministry to one another is to help one another think on those true things. And I think right now during COVID-19, we need to be doing this more than ever. And I know that it's hard because we are a scattered church right now. But I know that that many of you are trying to stay connected with one another, calling uh, calling others in the church or texting, email, uh, whatever it might be. I know some of you are, are engaging in some of the, uh, the video chats and, and studies that we're offering and those sorts of things. These are the times for us to be encouraging one another uh, with, with the truth of God, to be reminding one another that God is faithful, that God is good, that God is there for his people, that God works all things together for the benefit of those who love them, that God's purposes cannot be thwarted, cannot be defeated. We've got to be speaking these things to one another. And our commitment to the truth in all things will bring about great blessing to others and will strengthen the church. In fact, that's where Paul moves to in verse 25. He says, we put off falsehood and we put on truth telling because we are members one of another. Paul here returns to a theme that he's already taken up in this chapter, and that's the unity of the church. This is part of your new identity. Uh, We are all joined together. We're all connected to each other, just like parts of a body are joined together to form the whole. So it is with members of the church, which means that every time you lie, And every time you speak the truth, it actually has ripple effects impacting the church for evil or for good. And so to be deceitful to another member of the church in any way is is like like a part of the body in revolt against itself and can cause great harm to the entire church. Likewise, to be a loving truth teller is like powerful medicine to the body that can bring about great health and healing and strength and vitality to the church. In fact, that is what uh, what Paul was getting at in verse 15. You can back up there with me. Uh, he says, instead, it says, instead of being caught up and controlled by lies and deceptions, we are rather to speak the truth in love. And, and that becomes the means of us growing up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And that sort of unity, That sort of oneness that Jesus tells us about in John 17 is so obviously supernatural and powerful that the outside world will know that God is in our midst. And so we ought to pray that the outside world, like the nations of Zechariah chapter 8, would learn something of God's activity in our midst, that they might say of us uh, what those people in Zechariah's prophecy said, we have heard that God is with you. And, and, and our hope would be that they would be drawn to God and would connect the dots between the unity they see among us and the gospel that we preach. Ultimately, the reason why we are to be people of the truth is not just for utilitarian reasons. In other words, uh, things just tend to go better when we tell the truth. That's true. But that's not the main reason. And the main reason we're to be truth tellers is not just to... to um, to due to raw and personal morality. In other words, uh, we tell the truth, telling the truth is right because it's just right. Y'all, even a non-Christian humanist can say that. But the moral laws of the universe aren't just impersonal rules out there. They're instead attached to and rooted in a person, namely God himself. God is good, not because he conforms to an outside standard. Instead, God is the standard of what is good and right, and we are to conform to him. Indeed, that's exactly Paul's point in verse 24, uh, where he talks about the the new self uh, is created in the likeness of God. And the parallel passage in Colossians 3.10 is even clearer. He says that we are to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The reason why God saved you and the reason why God saved me was so that we might experience the privilege of looking just like the creator, just like Jesus. 
Paul makes this even clearer in Ephesians chapter 5. He simply says, be imitators, be imitators of God. People are supposed to look at you and look at me and see something of God. And whenever you lie, whenever you are dishonest, I don't care if it's just the most horrific bold-faced lie or if it's just a little bit of dishonesty and exaggeration on social media, you're not imitating God when you do that. Uh, you're lying. You're not only lying about uh, about whatever's coming out of your mouth in that moment or whatever's coming through the keyboard that you're typing on, but you're also lying about God. You're painting a false image of God, a God who always speaks what is true. And so as I sat there in my office in the moment of temptation to, to send that form in and to claim that money and feign ignorance to that rule that would disqualify me from getting that money, I knew that I couldn't do that. I knew that my identity was a child of God, uh, meant to image God, and I could not dishonor and blaspheme God in that way. I knew what my new identity was, and I also knew that I loved the truth as God did, and I could not go in that other, other direction and do that deed. And I also knew that in my identity as a child of God, my father would provide for all my needs. And I did not need to be like Adam and Eve in the garden who did not believe that and sought to meet their needs on their own apart from God. Um, I, I, I realized I did not need to be like Adam and Eve in the garden, believing the lie uh, that they were going to have to meet their, their, their needs on their own. Instead, I knew that as a child of God, my father would provide for all my needs. That's true of every child of God. If you're watching this video and you're not a Christian, you need to know that your whole life is characterized by lies, especially the lie that you can go through life just fine detached from God. And thinking that if there is a God, you can make it to heaven just fine based on the strength of your own morality. That's a lie. That's a big one. And you know it's a lie. And you also know that you have not always been completely honest in your life. That sometimes you have told lies and lived lies in various ways, shapes, or forms. And, and you know what they call people who tell lies, right? Liars. And that's you. And the Bible has a very sobering message for liars. Revelation 21.8 says liars will be punished forever in hell. You'll, you'll be punished for believing the lie that you don't need him. You'll be cut off from the enjoyment of, of God's presence forever, which is such a horrifying experience that, that Revelation describes it as, as being like being in a fiery lake forever. But the Bible also has a beautiful message for liars. God himself came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ to save liars, to save those who believe the lie. They rejected him. Jesus never told a lie, but he was treated like a liar. And, and he experienced the fiery wrath of God himself on the cross and then was raised from the dead three days later, demonstrating that he paid the full price for sins so that if any liar, any sinner, might repent of their sins and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, that they might be saved, brought into the family of God, and given a new wardrobe as they begin a beautiful, lifelong journey of being renewed and remade in the image of the Creator. If you're watching this and want to know more about the life that Jesus offers, you can let me know in the comments below and someone can reach out to you and tell you more about Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending the truth into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those of us who are believers, who are part of the people of God, that you would help us to walk with integrity in all of our dealings so that we might better put on display the image of the God who is the truth. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for those times of, of, of deceit, those, those times of exaggeration, those times of embellishment, those times of giving the appearance of something, controlling our image, 
and, and, and distorting actually what is true. And Father, would you more and more shape us into the image of our creator? And not just refraining from lies and deceit, but proactively and intentionally going forward and speaking the truth, speaking words of truth, words of, uh, uh, that correspond to reality, uh, words that, are, that, that are, are, are repeating and speaking back your promises so that we might be a blessing. Father, I pray for anyone who's tuning in uh, who has bought into the lie that they can make it on their own without Christ and without his salvation. Father, I pray right now that if there's anyone here who's like that, that you would break their hearts, that you would open their eyes, and that you would show them the truth that is in Jesus and that they would put off the old ways, the old self, and would put on Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.